0: Ruth, you live in Tel Aviv. What is it like there right now, just a few days out from the beginning of Hamas's ground incursion into Israel? So
1: actually, right now, as I'm talking to you, um, for the past two hours, there's just been this constant rocket barrage. Um, Apparently, Hamas, they announced that they were targeting the Israeli airport as retaliation for the civilian casualties of the past day. You know, even just now before coming here, which is why I might sound out of breath. um, I had to run um, because there was an air air raid siren. So right now it's quiet and let's hope it stays
0: that way. And I mean, are you mostly just staying inside of your apartment? Like, I assume that people are trying not to go outside that much. The streets
1: are pretty empty, but actually, you know, we're four days out um, mm-hmm. so you see people sort of itching to get out more. Um, it's a bit like sort of covid early days, weirdly enough, um, yeah. you know, where people are sort of advised to stay home. and generally they are. but 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 there is this quiet movement outside just because it's so, you know, it's so hard, and schools are out. so
0: um there there is this this quiet movement that's my colleague, Ruth Margoliet, Who has been reporting on this week's attack on Israel and the aftermath. Over the weekend, she wrote a piece titled Waking to an Attack from Hamas and described the experience of huddling in her stairwell with her family as air raid sirens blared. Since then, she has been reporting on what is happening on the ground. This is the political scene. I'm Tyler Foggett, and I'm a senior editor at The New Yorker. Ruth, I'm wondering if you can take us back to the events of Saturday morning. Can you explain how that morning unfolded for you and your family and then for people throughout Israel?
1: So for us, you know, we live in Tel Aviv, and it started with this early morning air raid siren uh, which isn't totally surprising. We've had these rounds before, but there was no inclination that another round of violence was starting. So it was a little bit surprising. Uh, for us, we we don't really have a reinforced room in our apartment. So we ducked outside to the stairwell. Um, and then very soon it became clear that the, this round was not going to be like the others and that um, there has been this ground incursion from Gaza. And we started seeing, you know, the news on our phones and um and these videos coming in of militants, you know, Hamas militants just invading the border wall, f- separating Gaza from Israel, um, and entering these border town communities, kibbutzes, um, southern communities, and just going from house to house. And and you know, the videos were just shocking. I mean I've certainly never seen anything like this. My entire generation hasn't. You know, this goes back sort of 50 years. People, you know, when when they reach to some sort of precedent, um, they go back to the 1973 war, um, when Israel was was attacked by Egypt and Syria. But but here, you know, the, the Gaza is is a coastal strip, it's a besieged community. To think that, you know, th- these militants just managed to Raid the wall, raid the fence, and and just enter Israel um, by the hundreds. And you see, you saw these bulldozers, and you saw them take over a military base and take tanks, and you know, and, and the, the number of hostages. I mean, this is just both sickening and just unreal. I mean, this is still unimaginable. You know, four days out, and and it's really really hard to wrap my mind
0: around. What is the latest death toll as we record this episode on on Tuesday?
1: Right now, I saw that it passed a 1,000 Israeli dead, 700 Palestinians. So, yeah, the numbers are just staggering.
0: One of the first and um, deadliest sites of the attack was a music festival in Israel. Um, and you recently wrote a piece focusing on the, the massacre that took place at this festival. I wonder if you can just talk about that a little bit, what happened there. So
1: this was early Saturday morning around, you know, sunrise. So 6.30 a.m., you had these young people in the desert at a music festival in this sort of forest clearing, pretty picturesque outside of um, a kibbutz there. And it was electronic music and people were dancing. And suddenly, you know, I spoke to survivors, people who were there, and it started with rocket fire. But of course, they didn't hear it as fire because of the music. So they saw these plumes of smoke in the air. And the police broke up the party, told them to go home because of the rocket fire. But very quickly, it changed from rocket fire to actual gunfire. And you had these pickup trucks of militants, Hamas militants, coming in and kind of ringing that entire area and shooting at everything that came their way. And just these harrowing videos of people, um, you know, running by foot in the desert, just trying to escape, running into the forest, hiding for hours, cars riddled with holes. I spoke to to one survivor who told me that they were like ducks in a range, right? So they were just sort of sitting ducks, just waiting. Then 260 bodies were recovered from there, I mean that that's one of the deadliest, if not the deadliest, site of of you know of really a pogrom, a, a massacre.
0: Yeah, it's staggering. Um, you know I, I feel like one thing that people are just trying to figure out, you know, both in the the U.S. around the world and um, seemingly in in Israel as well, is just how Israel was caught so off guard by this attack. Israel is known for you know the strength of its intelligence agencies, so. What are the theories behind how um, there could be such a massive intelligence failure like this?
1: There was a massive intelligence failure, and and also, you know, on every aspect here on the part of the military and 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 you know, intelligence gathering and and the, the amount of time it took the the army to finally arrive, um, and the border. But I, I will say that I think. Uh, you know, a huge part of it has to do with government policy in, over the past decade and more. Um, mm-hmm. You know, Benjamin Netanyahu's policy has been, um, so, so two things. I mean, for the, the first thing is that um, he has really weakened the Palestinian Authority in the West Bank, um, and that has been sort of purposeful um, in order not to, you know, to go into these negotiations for peace where Israel would have to concede land, The effect of that has been to prop up Hamas in Gaza um, and kind of relying on Qatari money um, and sort of quiet Israeli um, policy that really let Hamas kind of take over and, you know, become as powerful as, as we now found out that it is. Um, and the second thing has been to shift, um, resources away from these southern communities, away from protecting them, these kibbutzes, these moshavim, you know, mm-hmm. these small communities in the south and diverting them to the West Bank, um, to the occupied settlements there. And that's, you know, that's the right-wing government policy, um, they're, they have been sort of hailed in Israel in the past as being very security-minded, and yet what you saw here is just a security disaster on every level.
0: I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about the global political situation that is sort of the backdrop for all of this. Um, you know, one thing that's come up a lot is the fact that this attack happened in the middle of these high-stakes negotiations between Israel, the U.S., and Saudi Arabia.
1: Right, and and no one knows exactly why you know, why this came about now in, in a sense, the timing was kind of surprising because there was nothing sort of immediate going on with Hamas. There has been a question about its funding, you know, whether Qatar was delivering money or not. Yeah. There has been this, um, regional question or sort of local question of work permits for, for, um, for work, Palestinian workers from Gaza. But but all of this is very local, right? And so so then you look at the broader regional question, um, and you see the the ongoing negotiations for this normalization accord between Israel, the U.S., and Saudi Arabia. And of course, Iran um, is very much resistant to this normalization deal and to Saudi Arabia becoming a major um, you know player in in the region. And so there are these theories that Iran had a stake in this and wanted to um, just quash these negotiations and for this deal to go away. And so far they've managed to, because right now no one is talking about this deal with Saudi Arabia. Everyone is really focused on, um, on, on what's going on here. Um, and so if Iran is behind this, then it's just a question of whether we will also see a northern front in Israel um, opening up in the next few days, weeks. And that would be, I mean, as, as terrible as and shattering as everything has been so far. If there will be this northern front in Lebanon, if Hezbollah will enter the ring, then it's a whole other story because that's a state actor with even yeah. more, you know, even more weaponry, and um, just the, the scale of that would be would be massive.
0: I want to go back to what you um, kind of were alluding to earlier, which is just what what is happening domestically in Israel. And one of these things is, um, I mean, you wrote a piece, I think, in July called Israel on the Brink about Netanyahu's judicial reforms and how they've inflamed the country. And in the weeks leading up to the attack by Hamas, thousands of Israelis were marching in the streets of Tel Aviv to protest Netanyahu. And I think you referred to it as Israel's worst civic conflict in years. Um, So I'm wondering if you can just talk a little bit more about that, and if you think that chaos was intentionally exploited by Hamas?
1: Um, I think it very well could be. There's no arguing that Israel is at its sort of nadir in terms of sort of where civil society is at and and disunity among, you know, society and the military. Um, In recent days, you saw some ministers in Netanyahu's government trying to shift the blame onto the protesters, the anti-government protesters, and to say that because they threatened not to show up for military duty and because they have been protesting and they Mm. projected the government as weak, that this has been the result. And of course, the opposite is true. And, and what you end up seeing now is that, you know, all these military reservists who really protested against the government's actions, against this judicial overhaul, um, and these anti-democratic moves, everyone has been showing up for duty. Um, and actually it's, it's these protest movements that are now created, um, the massive, um, civil response to the last few days. And you have hundreds of volunteers, Giving clothes away and food to these um, people who have, you know, fled their homes on the kibbutzim. So actually, the protest movement is now kind of shifting its resources to helping, um, the, you know, Israeli soldiers and civilians, um, you know, against this attack. Um, but but there's no question that the Netanyahu's government and the weakening of um, of the judiciary and also just. All the democratic institutions in the country, um, I think, you know, outside observers look at that and they say, wow, Israel is really at its weakest point.
0: I know it's an incredibly complicated situation with, with the courts, but I'm wondering if you can just um, kind of briefly remind our listeners like exactly what it is that the protesters are rallying against and like sort of what is important to understand about these controversial judicial reforms.
1: Sure. So it all started in January when, like, a week after the government, the new Netanyahu government is sworn in, um, the justice minister announces these, what he calls reforms, but basically it's total overhaul of, um, of, of the judicial process in Israel. Um, and, and he introduces these steps, um, of, of, you know, of, um, government actions to really, um, kind of, Take control, exert power over um, the, the Israeli courts, and weaken the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court is Israel's only curb on on, on executive power, really. Um, so, so the idea that the government was now weakening its hand was both kind of frightening. And just um, a, a terrible prospect for what came ahead, um, which is a weakening of Israeli democracy and democratic institutions in the country. Um, so then it unleashed to these weekly protests on Saturdays in Tel Aviv and every Israeli, every major Israeli city. Um, and these have been going on for 40 consecutive weeks, just hundreds of thousands wow. of Israelis showing up on the streets and protesting and shouting democracy and calling on the government to to, to just retract the whole, um, the judicial overhaul and its reforms. And then this past Saturday was the first time since these protests began where, they were cancelled because of this attack, and now they're suspended. And there is talk about a possible emergency government, emergency unity government, um, and and this is all unclear. It's the, the political ramifications are still unclear.
0: So I'd like to talk to you more about Netanyahu's government and its response to the attack, and you know life in in Gaza. But first, we're going to take a quick break. You'll hear more from Ruth Margalit on the political scene from The New Yorker in just a minute. So let's talk about how the Israeli government has responded to um, the attack by Hamas. I mean, Netanyahu declares a state of war. It seems like, you know, electricity and water to Gaza has been cut off, which is really frightening since I've read that I think like half of um, the people who live in Gaza are children. It looks like the Israeli government has you know, told people who live in Gaza to evacuate, but that isn't so easy. Um, So I'm wondering if you can just talk a little bit about what has happened from the Israeli side ever since the initial, you know, attack on Saturday.
1: Yeah, so I think, I mean, first of all, it's important to note that, you know, it took Netanyahu hours um, to make some sort of announcement after this attack. You know, at that point, he wasn't interested in a unity government. So just that shows you the priorities, right? I mean, you have hours of just total radio silence, not only on his part, but on the part of these ministers, ministers who tweet and, and go on the radio and, and kind of, you know, have these, um, bombastic announcements on, about every tiny thing. And suddenly Israel is caught flat footed in this attack and there is nothing coming from the government. And not only that, but you have hostages being taken into Gaza. And no one is alerting the families. No one is contacting them. Still, I mean, I spoke to survivors just yesterday and and relatives of people who had been taken into Gaza. Yesterday was the first time that, you know, some of them got some word from an official source about their loved ones. And and so you had these terrible um, situations in which they learn about their loved ones from Hamas videos, Hamas propaganda videos. They see their faces suddenly on Telegram and TikTok and all these um, social media sites, and yet there is no response. After that, he announced the state of war, um, as you said, you know, cutting off water, electricity. And I mean, Israel right now, it's, it's just an impossible situation because, you know, on the one hand, I think the, the government and the military, they, they want to create deterrence and to show Hamas that it's, you know, retaliating. And on the other hand, you have this, as you mentioned, two million people on a narrow coastal strip um and you don't want to play into your enemy's hands um i mean it's so so i mean you know there there is a question of whether there will be a ground invasion so far yeah. Um, I think, you know, rightly so. There has been some, you know, hesitance about that. Um, but then the, the question is, what will become of all these hostages and how to bring them back? And, and it's, it's just unclear. And, um, every choice here, I mean, there, there doesn't
0: seem to be a right choice. The New Yorker's editor, David Remnick, just published a piece um, about the conflict in which some of his sources argue that Hamas has probably taken so many Israeli hostages um, in order to use them as leverage to get Israel to release, you know, the 5,000 Palestinian prisoners who Israel has. And, you know, 17 years ago, Israel traded more than 1,000 Palestinian prisoners for a single Israeli soldier. So I'm wondering if you can talk about that trade and just the political aftermath of it and what it might spell for this, um, you know, this current um, situation where there might be another another trade of some kind?
1: I think it's hard to overstate just how seriously Israel has always taken hostage situations. Um, and, you know, when you had this situation, as you mentioned, of Gilad Shalit, this Israeli soldier who was held prisoner by Hamas for five years before being released in exchange for over a thousand prisoners. Now you have 150 hostages, um, according to their estimates, you know, there could be more, who knows. And I mean, what kind of price will Israel pay for them? In in a way, I saw reports and I've heard from sources who say that Hamas kind of overplayed its hand, you know, as, as sort of twisted as that sounds but that it really can't deal with with this number. You know, the, the idea of what do you do with them? Where do you hide them? Do you um, separate them? Do you keep them all together? And then, I mean, the, the negotiations here are just something that Israel hasn't, has never had to deal with. You know, going as far back as 1973, the Yom Kippur War, it was soldiers um, who had been taken hostage. Here you have women, children, you have elderly women being taken from their homes you know, without medicine, you have these babies. It's both harrowing and just on an operational level. It's really hard to see what the next few days will breed. Um, and, and when I say that Israel takes hostages very seriously, I mean, not just hostages, but also bodies of soldiers. I mean, yeah. you know, it, 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 it has sort of released hundreds of Palestinian prisoners from Israeli prisons in exchange for bodies of soldiers. And now you have actual people living, we hope, living, you know, humans. And and it's hard to imagine the price that that Israel would have to pay for them. And hopefully it can be done in a way of diplomacy um, and, and by bringing in, you know, the, the United States, Qataris to help mediate this, to find the hostages. Um, you imagine even more casualties, both on the Israeli side and on the Palestinian side, and and it's just every option here is 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 a bad one.
0: Yeah, because these hostages, I mean, it's it's impossible to know where they are, what the conditions are in terms of where they're being kept and how they're being treated. But you would imagine that, I guess, um, yeah, if there's fighting on the ground in order to get them, that that is going to result in tremendous casualties on on both sides. Um, so when there was that trade 17 years ago a thousand to one one of those released palestinian prisoners is now the second most powerful figure in hamas and so there's obviously a lot of um emotion from family members who were desperate to get their their mothers their daughters their sisters back but i'm wondering if you can see there being any political pushback to a trade since the last one you know, some people would argue it resulted in making Hamas more powerful. And, you know, if Hamas is able to negotiate a trade here, I mean, if those 5,000 Palestinian prisoners are released, um, you know, this is in Remnick's piece too, that it just really kind of cements Hamas as like kings. The idea of that government being replaced after they're able to pull something like that off is kind of hard to imagine.
1: I I agree, um, but I, I really think that right now... You won't see any pushback on the part of Israeli society in the sense that there is this overwhelming sentiment that these hostages should be released, um, and that everything should be done, um, in order to, you know, to secure their return home. And Hamas has secured its win. I mean, you know, the amount of devastation that, that Hamas has been able to pull off and kind of, um, inflict on Israel. Is already unimaginable. So I I don't imagine there will be a lot of pushback here to release these these hostages at whatever price. Um, The one thing I will say is that, you know, there is also at the same time a kind of massive um, public sentiment of retaliation and revenge, and that shouldn't get in the way of securing the hostages return. I mean, you know, we shouldn't mistake a kind of instinctive need for revenge or retaliation. Um, We shouldn't mistake that for kind of genuine diplomatic attempts to get the hostages back.
0: You mentioned earlier that a lot of the people who were protesting the judicial overhaul, a lot of them have kind of shifted their efforts toward trying to help people in need in the country. And I'm wondering about anti-occupation activists in Israel and how they're responding to the war. I mean, is there any are there any rifts among the people about the best way to respond if the general sense is that everyone is kind of um in full agreement about responding in a kind of like strong, aggressive, militaristic way, or whether there's a lot of a lot of debate on the ground about the best way to move forward from here.
1: Well, I think first of all, just the the, the images that have come out from this attack um, leave no doubt as to you know what Hamas just the level of damage and I mean really kind of evil. Deeds and just, um, you know, harrowing actions. I mean, that leaves no moral doubt as to both the fact that it should be condemned and also that Israel had a right to defend itself in this instance. And that's true, I think, pretty much across the board. The question that is still open and, and, um, you know, people wonder about is whether, um, whether there will be any response from israeli palestinians um and whether this will spill into you know ethnic violence like we had seen 2 years ago in israel where um there were these um tensions and and you know there were these lynchings and and and, and really just terrible violence between um jews and arabs in these mixed cities and so far, um, these mixed cities have been pretty quiet and, and the Israeli-Palestinian front has been. Um, has been also quiet, but there's no doubt that Hamas is trying to kind of boil the area by introducing this as a kind of pan-Palestinian effort to sort of fight for and protect the Al-Aqsa Mosque. They're using these symbols that are supposed to rally the entire Palestinian community behind them, not only in Gaza, but everywhere, including in Israel. Um, so far, Israeli Palestinians have resisted this. People here are hopeful that it stays that way.
0: And then I'm wondering if we can go back and talk just a little bit more about Gaza right now, sort of the living conditions there, and then um, this question of whether it's even possible for Palestinians who were there to evacuate. It sounds like the Israeli government has released instructions for how to how to get out and that those instructions are more detailed than they have been in the past, you know, leave this neighborhood, you know, how to do it. Um, but you know, at the same time, it sounds like Hamas isn't letting people leave. So what can we anticipate happening there, given the calls for them to leave and then the fact that they, they can't for the most part?
1: Right. So Israel, Israel has called on Palestinians, the civilians of Gaza, to leave their homes because there were these airstrikes and they were targeting the Hamas leadership and trying to, um, you know, to knock out its bases but of course, this civilian community has nowhere to go. It's a blockaded coastal strip. You know, you have these hundreds of thousands of refugees. You know, th- it's just an impossible situation, even though Israel has has tried to sort of, you know, give them direct kind of more um, specific instructions as to how to leave their homes. But without electricity, without water, it's very hard and at the same time, you know, you have these hostages there now. It's, you know, it's, it's a two million people living in a few kilometers of coastal land and, and tiny alleyways, you know, intersecting streets. I mean, the urban uh, warfare is, is just going to be massive there. There's no distinguishing between, you know, Hamas headquarters and civilian apartment buildings. It's, it's all part of the same you know, the same thread, kind of same urban thread. So there there really isn't a way to kind of, um, you know, use pincers and just take out the Hamas leadership, um, even though that's the expectation in Israel. Everyone wants to see the, you know, the top, top five, top 10, top dozen Hamas um, military commanders gone. Um, how do you do that when they're, Literally embedded in the civilian population without incurring um, civilian damage, not only civilian damage but just hundreds of and, and thousands of casualties. That's just impossible, and and it's really hard to see, you know, what can be done on, on on a humanitarian front.
0: What do you know the people of Israel, or at least the people that you talk to, kind of want to see from Netanyahu and the the Israeli government at this point? And then what's the response that people are expecting?
1: So I think, first of all, people here want to see the hostages um back and they want to see the hostage situation addressed. You have these um, news editions that open up with a sight of relatives just tearing their hair out, saying, you know, yeah. I haven't heard anything from my daughter, my son, my cousin, my you know, my grandmother. We have no news. They're missing. We we saw these Hamas videos of them taken into Gaza. We know nothing, and and what is being done, and and just the total sense of of you know incompetence and ineptitude, and I think that's the number one uh, priority for Israelis right now, um, and then the second is the protection of these these border town communities that have just sustained massive damage just today. There was footage of a hundred body bags being carried out of one kibbutz kibbutz Be'eri, just the site of a massacre um, so, so there 's a sense that these communities must be protected um, and then there is this there is this public opinion um, you know sentiment calling on Israel to wipe out Hamas. Now, what does that exactly mean? How do you wipe out an entire organization? that is clearly much more sophisticated and powerful than Israel has ever anticipated, that's really unclear. Um, so my hope is that the government will not rush to reoccupy Gaza or do anything without knowing, um, you know, what, what the consequences of that uh, might lead to. You know, Israel left Gaza um, unilaterally in 2005 and the notion that now this situation would be sort of exploited to go back there um, is just, I mean, that's really hard to imagine. And I hope it won't lead to that.
0: Well, thank you so much for your time. And um, I really appreciate you being here. And I hope you're able to stay safe.
1: Oh, thank you. Thanks so much for having me.
0: Ruth Margoliet is a writer and a former member of The New Yorker's editorial staff. You can read her dispatches from Israel on newyorker.com now. This has been The Political Scene from The New Yorker. I'm Tyler Foggett. The show is produced by Michelle Moses with support from Sidney Cobb and Gianna Palmer. Our executive producer is Stephen Valentino. Our theme music is by Allison Layton Brown. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next Wednesday.